The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Our text today comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and and I'd like to read together. It's, It's quite a long text, but it says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it, who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, these are, these are hard words, but they are your words, and so we know that they are true words. Help us to see you for who you are, so that we might submit to your authority by faith, and in turn receive your grace. Our desire, Lord, is to hear from you today. So allow your spirit to speak into our hearts that we might hear a word from you that would transform us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So about 10 years ago, um, I attended my first Bears playoff game. And uh, my boss, he had these season tickets that were passed down from generation after generation. And and these were incredible seats. They were right on the 50-yard line, about 10 rows back. This was, this was the, the view. And it was 2006. The Bears were in the playoffs. 
And he asked me if I wanted to buy them. And he was selling them for $300 a piece, <laughs> almost ashamed to admit. But I, I don't usually spend that kind of money on sporting events, but I had a good friend who was a diehard Bears fan, and he knew everything about the Chicago Bears. And so I called him up, and we both agreed that this is, this is going to be like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Right on the 50-yard line, playoff game, so we bought them. And for any hardcore Bears fans out there, you may recall the game. It was January 15, 2006. The Bears were coming off a playoff bye week, and they were playing the Carolina Panthers. And it was not a good game. <laughs> On the second play of the game, uh, the wide receiver of the Panthers, Steve Smith, he caught a 58-yard touchdown pass. And 30 seconds into the game, the Bears were already down 7 to nothing. And they didn't lead the entire game. They ended up losing the game. And Steve Smith, this, this wide receiver from the Panthers, would end up having a career-high day. And he torched the Bears. He, he caught 12 passes that day, 218 yards total pa- receiving, and two touchdowns. And my friend and I, we, were, you know, we spent all this money, <laughs> and we're so angry at the game. And it's like, we, we, I can't believe we spent $300 to watch the Bears lose on a playoff game. And I remember really clearly when Steve Smith scored his second long touchdown, my buddy, he started to vent. And, he, you know, he's, he was so frustrated with this complete failure of the defense. And he said, the whole point of the cover two defense is not to give up big plays like that. And I don't know if you know about cover two defenses or not, but maybe a little over your head. But there was this guy that was sitting right in front of us with his son watching the game. And he turned around and he said, that wasn't a cover two defense. And then my friend goes, I know, it was a cover zero defense. And then we just started laughing, me and my buddy are like, ha, 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 yeah, you showed him. And who does this guy think he is telling us what a cover two defense is and isn't? And, you know, we just went home depressed. And I, was, and I vowed never to go <laughs> spend that kind of money on a on a game again. Well, the next day, I go back into my office, and my boss asked me, so how was the game? And I was like, it was horrible, <laughs> you know. It's just a horrible game. And, and then he asked, so did you see Gary Fensick at the game? And I said, who? And he said, Gary Fensick. He sits right in front of my seats. And so I, I'm not a Bears fan. I mean, at the time, I, was, I did move from St. Louis five years earlier. I went there really to, you know, with my friend, and I Googled Gary Fensick. Um, sorry, this is Steve Smith. Gary Fensick is a legendary Chicago Bear. He's an 85 Super Bowl starter, safety. He is the all-time leading tackler for the Bears, ever. All-time leading intercept, interceptions for the Bears, ever. <laughs> and... I was, like, horrified and mortified. I was like, are you serious? We sat in front of this guy? And so I called up my friend. I said, you know that guy that you mouthed off to about the cover two defense? That was Gary Fensick from the 85 Bears. And I said, I thought you were a Bears fan. How could you not recognize an 85 Bear when you see one? And we were both so mortified. We couldn't believe that we had missed this opportunity. And there were clues the whole day. I mean, I think we were just so distracted by the game and the money we spent that 
we didn't notice that all these people were coming up during the game, and they were, like, putting their shoulder around. I'm like, can you take a picture, you know? And they're, like, taking pictures with him. And we're like, who is this guy, you know? (laughs) You know, it was just funny because we rebuked the knowledge of this 85 bear. And we were so distracted that we didn't realize who he was. And I think in some ways that's how it was for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You know, the Son of God, he's literally sitting right in front of them. And though they had so much knowledge of the Scriptures, it was useless. They failed to recognize him, even when he was in their presence. Even when all the Old Testament Scriptures were quoted before them, which prophesied of his coming, they completely missed it. And they love their positions of wealth. They love their positions of power. And as Dr. Steve elaborated on last week, when, when Jesus kicked the money changers out of the temple, he was removing a cash cow for the religious elite. Now, this is probably like their biggest fundraising event of the year. And on top of that, their popularity, their teaching was attracting, or his popularity, Jesus, was attracting this buzz. Large crowds followed him everywhere he went. And, then, and so they began to see their influence waning. And so they didn't see him for who he was. They were so jealous. They were so envious. They were so protective of their own positions of power and and their influence. And I think the same holds true for many of us today, that we're often unable to see Jesus as the way and the life if we see him as a threat to our way of life. We're simply unable to see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, if we see him as a threat to our way of life. But this is not the Lord's desire. He wants us to see him for who he is. And in this passage, Jesus reveals three very important things to his people. He reveals his authority. He reveals his identity. And in doing so, he reveals our destiny. And this is why Jesus came. He came to reveal his authority. So we are here now in the middle of Passion Week in Luke chapter 20. Jesus is no longer making any attempts to suppress rumors about who he is or what he came to do. In fact, we find out that he's in broad daylight preaching the gospel and notice where he's doing it. Verse 1 says he's doing it in the temple. He's doing it in the temple. This is the home turf of his enemies. The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. And Jesus is forcing a confrontation. And they oblige. And they approach him. And they ask him a question. They're trying to trap him. Trying to expose him. And they say, by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? And in essence, they're asking... Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come into Jerusalem, present yourself as king, and receive the praises of the people? Who gave you permission to kick out those who worked for us in these very temple courts? And then have the audacity to come right back and then hold court yourself. This is what they are asking when they demand, by what authority do you do these things? And this word authority is something that 
we see all throughout Luke. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, it says in Capernaum that the people were amazed at his teaching. Because why? Because his message had authority. And after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You see, in that tradition, whenever a rabbi would teach, he would always quote the rabbis that came before him. And they served as their authority. But Jesus didn't do that. He comes along and and he speaks freely for God without any authority from man, as if he himself were God. And it's this unique practice that astonishes the people and offends the other rabbis. And up until this point, Jesus limited the exercise of his authority until he comes into Jerusalem and he puts it on full display. And he does that first by carefully planning his entrance into the city, presenting himself to the people as king. And he does it by cleansing the temple when he drives out all the money changers in the courts of the Gentiles. And now with his teaching right in the middle of the temple courts, he's exercising again his authority. And we look at how does Jesus respond to their question? Jesus does something very interesting. He he performs this judo move on them, right? He turns their question back to themselves. And he simply responds with his own question. And he asks them whether the ministry of John the Baptist, who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, was from God, was from heaven, or was from man. Now, when Jesus asks anyone a question in the Gospels, I think it's important to really think about why is he asking anyone a question, ever. (laughs) Because if you think about it, if Jesus was in fact who he claimed to be, God, and had perfect knowledge and could read minds and read hearts, what purpose does asking any question of anyone ever serve? What knowledge could he possibly gain that he does not already possess? There's only one logical conclusion. It's not so that he can gain insight from that person for himself but so that that person might gain insight about himself. I love the way that Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, The Lord's questions always reveal the true me to myself. The Lord's questions always reveal the true me to myself. And this is exactly what Jesus' question did on that day. It exposed the true heart and the motive of these men And so they refuse to answer it. If they say that John the Baptist's commission came from God, then logically they must believe him and affirm Jesus as the Messiah, just as John had proclaimed. And if they say that it came from man, then they know they're stuck. They're going to face the fury of his many followers. And so they take the coward's route, and they pretend like they don't know. We don't know. And the irony is they came to Jesus with their carefully crafted question to expose Jesus. But they're the ones who end up being completely exposed. And so Jesus is asserting his authority in doing all these things. Revealing that he is from God. 
And so he came not only to reveal his authority, he came also to reveal his identity. Jesus came to reveal his authority, but he also understood that they could not respect his authority until first they recognized his identity, until they realized who he was. And so although he chooses not to answer their question, the truth is he does, in fact, answer their question, doesn't he? He does it in the form of a parable. And so looking back in verse 9 through 16, it says that he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And we learn through this parable that there's a succession of servants that come to these tenants. One after the other, they're rejected, rejected, rejected. Until what? Until the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. You know, at times, Jesus' earlier parables, I think, can, can seem very cryptic, can't they? Parables were designed to reveal truth to those who were seeking. But it was also designed to confound those whose hearts were too hard to receive it. But unlike many other parables, this one's pretty straightforward. It's in the form of a simple allegory, and make no mistake, it's a stinging rebuke to the religious leaders that they had failed in their unique covenant relationship with God. They had failed in their calling to be a light to all the nations. And it was a reminder that they had rejected all the prophets that came before Jesus. Jeremiah, Isaiah, one after the other. That God had provided as a warning to them. And it was a prediction that they would ultimately reject even his precious beloved son who stood before them. This was what Jesus was revealing to them. Jason Lowe Baxter says this, Fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come nearly to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, understanding who Jesus truly is is so important. This is why when he's with his disciples, he asks them the all-important question. He stops and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Unlike the prophets of old, Jesus was not just the messenger. He was the message. He was the message. He was the embodiment of God's provision, God's way for our redemption. And so we see Jesus reveal his authority through his identity. And through his identity and his authority, we're left with a choice. 
Who is he? And the answer to that question reveals our ultimate destiny, doesn't it? Jesus didn't reveal his authority and his identity just so that we would know who he was. He did so because if we understood and trusted in who he was, it would determine our eternal destiny. And look again at verse 16. Notice their response when Jesus confronts them with God's rejection of them because of their rejection of Christ. It says, when they heard this, they said, surely not. You know, this should be shocking news, right? The God of the universe, is what Jesus is telling them, was sending his beloved son to convey a message to his people. And this news is shocking to them, right? But for all the wrong reasons. They're shocked that God would even entertain the thought of rejecting them and removing them from their place of privilege. And notice how Jesus responds. He looks directly at them and he says, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus has now answered the question regarding by what authority he had come. He's revealed his identity. That he was not just a prophet sent by God. He was the very son of God. And now we find him revealing the destiny of those who choose to accept or reject him. He wasn't just going to rebuild the temple. He was presenting himself as the very cornerstone of that temple. And this cornerstone would cause men to stumble, cause them ultimately to be crushed if they rejected him. You know, cornerstone is an interesting thing. It's, um, it's the most important stone of an entire building because it's laid, as it says, in the corner. And in this corner, it binds two walls together, perfect right angles, and, and it's built there to, to bring the walls together and to strengthen them. And, it, you know, it's crucial to get the cornerstone right or else the entire building structure <clears throat> would be compromised. And you may recognize it often as, um, you know, it's commemorated or it's bronze. It's easily identified in many corners of buildings. And just as the cornerstone was the most important building block of a structure, Jesus would be the most important building block for salvation. It is by him that everything else holds together. Those who rejected God's Son would be rejected by God. This was true then. This is still true today. And it's a hard truth. It was a hard truth then. It's still a hard truth today. And in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are, are standing before the high priest and the Jewish council, they had just healed a crippled man. And they're standing before the exact same group of men that Jesus had addressed in the temple in Luke chapter 20. And they essentially repeat Jesus' words to them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, it says, They say, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And look at what they say here. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among me by which we must be saved. You know, we live in a pluralistic culture where tolerance has become the queen of virtues. It's not just unpopular, uh, but it's now considered a hate crime and it's considered bigotry to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. And we're no longer shocked that God would provide his beloved son as a way to himself. In our culture, we're more shocked that God would dare to provide only one way. Only one way. And so I want to show you a couple brief videos. The first is a clip from an Oprah Winfrey show many years ago. And I think she expresses a very popular view in our culture um, that there couldn't possibly be only one way to God. And then I want to show you another clip of a young boy from Nebraska who calls into a Christian radio show or radio station to share some insights that he's learned about God and God's love for him just by working on the farm. I'm going to apologize up front for the the first clip. The the audio and the video is pretty poor, but um, I thought it would still be helpful, so... A panel has been discussing the spirituality and the forces of God, but I also believe that there are two forces that are here with us, that we do have our, our, our God that we can depend on, but there's also a power of darkness that we do need to be aware of. And, and that's you, where the choice is. Do you begin. believe that, and that you can choose between one or the other? Most most absolute definitely. Yes. Now, now Marianne uh, Williamson says in her book, Return to Love, that we're always walking in the direction of one or the other, that all of your actions in life, either you're moving toward the darkness or you're moving toward the light. Right. She calls it fear and love. There's this wonderful book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which talks, it, which, which is, anyway, it's a gorilla talking, but anyway, <laughs> uh, it talks about one of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world that there are millions of ways to be a then human how do you being and, God? and many ways no but many paths many to what you call God that and her crazy. path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light but her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her if it brings her to the same point that it brings you it doesn't matter whether she called it god along the way or not and i guess the danger that could be on that i mean it it sounds great on the onset but if you really look at both sides I there could couldn't possibly be just one way what what about jesus what about jesus there isn't only one way. There is one way and only one way, and there that is through Jesus. Jesus. There couldn't possibly be with because a million you of people say in the there world. There couldn't possibly be. Because you say, you intellectualize it and say there isn't. If no. you don't believe that, you're all buying into the lie. But Can I talk to you? You bet, Logan. What's up? I want to tell you something that God just told me. 
Okay. Last night, my dad was roping this calf. And this calf had been born from a really old cow. She, she didn't have really the greatest milk. She didn't have, like, the vitamin C and stuff. Okay. Hold on. Mom? So cute, I guess, his mom talked. I'm talking right now. I'll be up in a second. But sorry about that. But anyway, she broke her back. And this morning I went out and put her down myself. I was talking to God. I was asking God why she was special. And God said, you know, Logan, but my son was special. But he died for a purpose. It's kind of the same thing. That calf was close to me, and God's son was close to him. Logan, you're you're so right. It's true. Think you're gonna be okay? Yeah, I'll be fine. But I just wanted to tell you guys that that is so important. Just remember when you lose a loved one or a pet. Always remember that God gave his son too, and he understands. He will always understand. He will always just run to him. Logan, you're wiser than you know, buddy. Oh, sometimes I don't think I'm wise. Uh, Trust me, I've done a lot of stupid stuff, (laughs) but I've learned from it. Yeah, but see, buddy, that's what makes you wise, somebody that learns from their mistakes. I just figured I'd better call and share with you guys. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You know, I believe that Jesus taught in parables, not only to bring deep spiritual truth to life by using everyday examples from life, but also so that we might recognize that we can see and we can hear from the Lord, even in the most mundane everyday happenings of life. Malcolm Muggeridge says it like this, every happening, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us and the art of life is to get the message. Every happening in our lives, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us and the art of life is to get the message. Logan was able to recognize the great sacrifice of God giving up his son when he had to put down his calf. And it just overwhelmed him with gratitude. And, you know, watching that, it makes me wonder, even for myself, have, you, have I gotten the message? Have I gotten that message in my own life? God did not only send his prophets as messengers to us. He sent his beloved son, who was the message. And do we live with that gratitude that God would give such great a gift, so great a gift, to provide a way to him? Or like so many in our world, do we live in utter disgust at the thought that God would only provide one way to himself? How selfish. Let's bow our 
head for a moment of reflection and prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. These are really important questions. These are questions that the Lord himself asked of his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? So many people in our world today, they, they just they want to put Jesus in a box. I suppose he was a good moral teacher. I guess I could live by some of his good teachings. And there are even other religions who want to reduce Jesus to nothing more than just a prophet. But in this parable we find, no, he's much more than just a prophet. He's the beloved son of God. And so what you believe about who he is will ultimately determine whether you're able to submit under his authority. He is not speaking for God. He is God. And so if you find yourself in a place where you don't recognize him, even when he's standing right before you, then maybe like the these Pharisees, these chief priests, these elders. We are so in love with our own way of life, protecting our way of life, that we cannot see the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, truly he is the cornerstone. There is no middle ground. Everything he says matters. Everything he did was of infinite importance. Everything about him matters. If he is not God's son, as he claimed to be, then none of it matters. None of it matters. But we cannot stand in the middle and act like some of it matters, some of it doesn't matter, Or give him half of the authority in our lives and fail to submit to all of him. He has not left us that choice. We are either for him or against him. He is the cornerstone. He is the only name, the only name by which we can be saved. And you can see that either as a blessing. Or is a curse? Let's just pray to the Lord. Let him speak into our lives.